In the year 1920, professional football was at a crossroads. The league could have easily fallen into the depths of obscurity, or it could rise to the level of greatness. An automobile showroom in Canton, Ohio, would serve as a backdrop for this pivotal moment, and buckets of beer all over the showroom would serve as the liquid refreshment that would help decide the fate of the NFL. Welcome to the Football History Dude Podcast, where each episode is a journey back in time to learn about the rich history of the NFL. Your host is Arnie Chapman. Football is his passion, and he wants you to come along with him to explore the yesteryear of the gridiron. So hop on board his DeLorean, and let's get this baby up to 88 miles per hour. So now we step off our time machine. The date is January 12, 1891, the date that our hero of the story was born. Our hero's name is none other than Ralph E. Hay, who we are going to call the pioneer and founder of the NFL. Let's first get a little bit of a background of this individual. After graduating high school, he would work for a car dealership. After a while, he would find out that he had a knack for selling cars. And I believe that the salesmanship of Ralph Hay was kind of responsible for him being able to put together the founding of the NFL, which we're going to get into a little bit later in this episode. You see, after a while, he decided that basically, hey, I'm pretty good at selling these cars, so why don't I just start my own company? And uh, he started this company called Ralph E. Hay Motor Company, which sold Hupmobiles, Jordans, and Peace Arrows. What I kind of gathered from the different articles that I read was the Hupmobile was more of a uh, working man's type of car. It was a little bit more affordable. It was kind of more plain, I guess. Um, Maybe we can compare it to nowadays the working class man's got the Chevy truck or the Ford F-150, those kind of things. Then we had the uh, Peace Arrows, which were marketed as more of a luxury car. And I kind of think about it now where I hear the word Cadillac as being luxurious. And in 1915, the company boasted it was the largest user of aluminum in the world. In 1909, President Howard Taft had requested that Peace Arrows were going to be the new official cars of the White House. And in an earlier episode, we had talked about the original Beast Mode. And the cars nowadays, the limousines, are called the Beast. So I'm thinking that in some crazy little world, I'm going to make a connection and say that the Peace Arrows and the NFL has something to do with the name of the Beast limousine that drives our president around nowadays and I, I know that doesn't have any thing to do with it but it's fun because this is our world of football and that's what we're going to go ahead and save moving forward to go along with the theme that pierce arrows were for more of the uh, i guess rich and famous some of the prominent people that drove pierce arrows were john d rockefeller orville wright j edgar hoover and even babe ruth um there were many more but those are some of the names that I recognized when I was looking through the different websites and such. But of the three types of cars that he sold, I wanted to talk about the Jordans because it seemed more like this is the car that cool dude would drive. It was the first company to have more exotic names and some of them that I saw were Sport Marine, Tomboy, and Playboy. I saw an ad that was described by many that kind of turned the auto marketing industry upside down and headed it into a new direction and it was for the Jordan Playboy. And there was like a picture of a dude, you know, I'm guessing like a cool dude driving 
the Jordan Playboy and probably like the middle of the desert racing against a cowboy on a horse. And he was just basically, he was smoking them. And, and I have to imagine that they were kind of trying to insinuate that you ride this car and you're going to be a pretty cool dude. In fact, if you were to read the verbiage that was on the ad, you know, mind you, they didn't have the television back then, so you couldn't just have a commercial, but I could imagine an old Western style voice reading this ad just makes the hair on the back of your neck spike up and you just get these little tinglys down your back and makes you like, yep, I'm going to go buy one of those things. And the ad went as such. Now, I'm not going to speak in the old Western style voice because I would just embarrass myself, but I'm going to read it to you word for word and just kind of close your eyes right now and imagine you're riding one of these Jordan Playboys through the desert and you're just some cool dude and you've got this horse and a cowboy on top of it chasing after you. And here it goes. Somewhere west of Laramie, there's a bronco busting, steer roping girl who knows what I'm talking about. She can tell what a sassy pony, that's a cross between grease lightning and the place where it hits, can do with 1,100 pounds of steel in action when he's going high, wide, and handsome. The truth is, the Jordan Playboy was meant for her. Again, that's not going to be how I would put this into a radio commercial. I'd have, I'd probably hire one of those professional guys, you know, like I said, the Western style voices or something like that. I don't know. But I got to imagine, if that was the turning point for advertising of the auto industry, and it happens to be sold by what would end up being the pioneer and founder of the NFL, maybe we can kind of make a connection to the uh, Super Bowl commercials that are going on nowadays. But we're going to go ahead and leave that for a different episode of the Football History Dude. And our hero, Ralph, would go on to have the largest dealership in the area and even presented an amphibious hydrocar to Congress in 1917 for the use in the war. And even though that stuff is all fun and dandy, we're still talking about football. We want to know why do we have any connection to some cool dude driving a car or the president turning his motorcade into Pierce Arrows? And what does it have to do with the NFL? You see, Ralph Hay used his money from a successful auto company to purchase the Canton Bulldogs in 1918. The team was one of the uh, more prominent teams in the Ohio area. And from what I gathered, it was more of a savvy marketing move for Ralph to be able to promote his dealership, which can't stop thinking about nowadays in my team, the Lions and the Fords. You know, there's that correlation that I always have to seem to keep coming up every time I research deep, rich history of the NFL. So to give you an example of the dominance that the Canton Bulldogs had, from 1915 to 1923, the team went 47-1-5 and with five championships. And of those five championships, three of them came while Ralph Hay owned the team. Another little interesting golden nugget that we have here is from 1921 to 1923, which, of course, came under the ownership of Hay, the team went 25 games without a defeat, which was really a record of 22-3, and as in 22 wins, 0 losses, and 3 ties. And as I looked it up, that still stands as 
the record for the most consecutive games without a loss for the National Football League. It's kind of cool to think that a record would stand that long, but then again, I guess maybe there wasn't as much competition back then, maybe because the league wasn't that organized, which could be part of the reason why we are talking about this episode right here. There was a need for a change. There was a need for some kind of collaboration. In fact, from what I saw, professional football was pretty much in danger of going extinct. You see, the teams weren't really making a lot of money, and they're all like, hey man, I'm like broke as a joke, dude. I got player salaries that are rising. I mean, my players are jumping teams. I mean, I can't make that cheddar. And from what it looked like, there were some strong teams that were emerging in Illinois, Indiana, and Western New York. And they were starting to poach players from the Ohio League. I mean, losing losing star players like that could just turn the league sideways. And like I said, I could just make them extinct. Because the fans aren't going to want to come and watch a bunch of ragtag dudes just running around and tackling each other. Which is why it was time for somebody to step up. And our hero, Ralph Hay, was a man for the job. The first meeting was held on August 20th, 1920, in Ralph's office at his dealership. Now, part of it made it a little easier for him because he had a ringer on his team. I mean, a ringer in the sense that he had this famous athlete, Jim Thorpe. I mean, they called him Big Jim, and he was possibly the most recognizable athlete and an Olympian in the world at the time. I looked at it, I saw a picture of him, and I was thinking, the dude reminds me of John Wayne in a football uniform. Just this, he was just like this guy that exudes confidence and bravado, if you know what I mean. But while he had Big Jim, it really wasn't a meeting unless you had some other teams there. And there were representatives from three different teams of the Ohio League. So from Akron came Frank Need, who was a cigar store proprietor, and Art Ranney, who was another rubber city businessman. From the Cleveland Tigers came the manager, Jimmy O'Donnell, and he brought Stanley Kofal, who was the coach and star player of the team. Now just a brief little backstory on this one. Apparently it looked like a year prior, Hay and O'Donnell were on bad terms because Hay had refused to put the Tigers on the schedule. It was said that O'Donnell needed Jim Thorpe to draw the crowd. I mean, basically, like I said, John Wayne. Who don't want to go see that dude? And the final attendee was the owner and manager of the Dayton Triangles, who was Carl Stork. So now that we have our attendees all accounted for, let's get the first order of business. The meeting resulted in the first time that they would officially call it the American Professional Football Conference. Now, the meeting notes were kind of sketchy from what I'm gathering. Like, there wasn't really a whole lot there. It left it for the uh, imagination to figure it out. And from the newspapers, there was a cover story that made up that they were, you know, using quotes, gathering to hammer out a schedule. But the Akron Beacon Journal had an article speaking of, uh, again, quotes, working agreement. But Canton, Dayton, and the Cleveland Papers made it a little bit more specific about the meeting that happened in the Mobile office. Often considered this as a preliminary meeting, it was kind of cool to see that it was really the first time that it came out that they called themselves the American Professional Football Conference, and they elected Ralph Hay as a temporary secretary. 
And like I said, some of the city papers were a little bit more specific about what really truly went on in that Hupmobile office. An article from the Canton Repository described the meeting as such. The purpose of the APFC will be to raise the standard of professional football in every way possible, to eliminate bidding for players between rival clubs, and to secure cooperation in the formation of schedules, at least for the bigger teams. Now, an article from the Dayton Journal Herald discussed the uh, the whole deal with the college player rules, and it went as such. The league voted unanimously not to seek the services of any undergraduate player. Last season, there were quite a number of intercollegiate stars who padded their bankrolls by slipping away on a Sunday and performing with the pro team, using every name under the sun but their own to hide their own identity. Some startling disclosures came later that brought the wrath of intercollegiate heads down on the pro game. Now, at the time, college football was basically still by far and away more powerful than the pro game. So I can understand why they would say, the wrath of intercollegiate heads down on the pro game. So then going back to the Canton repository, it also discussed the topic of team jumping. And it goes as such. Members of the organization reached an agreement to refrain from inducements to players to jump from one team to another, which has been one of the glaring drawbacks of the game in past seasons. Contracts must be respected by players as far as possible, as well as by club managers. I mean, to you and me, that seems like a, well, doy. Yeah, a team shouldn't have like a player playing for them and then the next week have to play against that same player. Of course, I mean, it does happen. Uh, not too often, but every now and then you may have a player that's traded from one team to another, which then the following week has to go ahead and play that team. I'm kind of curious. I wonder how many times that's actually happened in the NFL. I, I guess maybe I'm going to have to go ahead and either dedicate an episode to that or if anybody knows, go ahead and send me a shout. You can do that at the website, www.thefootballhistorydude.com slash contact. Or if you want, you can just hit me up on Twitter. It's at FHDude. But let's get back to the meeting. From what it looked like, another topic that seemed a little murky was the hush-hush about capping the player salaries by the owners. Like I said, they were bleeding out money. They were all like, uh, we're going to go bankrupt. The player's salaries are out of control. We cannot deal with this. Thus, maybe, the initial discussions for what we have now in the NFL, which is a salary cap. I mean, all in all, the four teams needed more to keep the team going. So Ralph Hay was put in charge of contacting other teams across the nation to bring them together to have an official meeting of the league. So this is the part where we're going to hop back on my DeLorean, tick that baby up to 88 miles an hour. We're going to hop on about a month into the future. We're going to go to September 17th. 1920. Once again, we are at Ralph Hayes' dealership. And although this was a big day, it was actually overshadowed at the time because Canton had signed a huge All-American tackle by the name of Wilbert Henry. I'm wondering if at the time Ralph, when he knew he was signing this All-American tackle, at the same time having this first official league meeting, did he realize that the signing of this All-American tackle would play second fiddle to the meeting? Or did he in his mind think, dude, this meeting has the chance to revolutionize our game, and we as owners possibly have the chance to become what they are now, the billionaires. 
So they are the pioneers that all you NFL owners out there should be thanking for the extra cash that's flowing in your pockets. So getting to the meeting, the day, the night, the thing we keep talking about in this episode. All accounts that I saw pointed out that it was a steamy, hot night in the Canton dealership. Got to imagine they didn't have air conditioning back then, you know. Just crank up that AC, man. It's getting hot in here. So you'll find out later that one of the ways that we find that the members of this meeting kept cool was that Ralph Hay provided free buckets of beer. And you're going to find out that although this seemed like a very cool offering, it potentially could have been devastating to what you and I know as the National Football League. But we'll get to that a little bit later. You see, Ralph was successful in gathering representatives from 11 different teams. The teams included his Canton Bulldogs, the Decatur Staley's, the Chicago Cardinals, the Akron Pros, the Cleveland Indians, the Dayton Triangles, the Massillon Tigers, the Hammond Pros, the Muncie Flyers, the Rock Island Independents, and the Rochester Jeffersons. The man that took the minutes down went by the name of Art Rainey. And, like the other minutes, he was, uh, let's just say, left a little bit for the imagination. From what I understood, also, the meeting was officially called to order at 8.15, but the beer was free. So they were there before 8.15, and what they said was it looked like a lot of the major details were hammered out off the record. So maybe that's one reason why we don't see, you know, like a detailed version of the minutes. Kind of like a, I guess, a abridged version. <laughs> but a abridged after-the-fact version. One of the actual documented changes was they decided to change the name from the American Professional Football Conference to instead the American Professional Association, which they didn't name it league. They named it an association. And some of the articles that I saw described this as possibly a way for the owners to maybe not totally commit or kind of like have an out where, eh, I don't feel like dealing this anymore, so, you know, it's just an association, it's no league, I'm, like, not super serious about this, I'm out. But I don't know for sure. It would, in a few years, be changed to the National Football League, and then it's, I guess you could say, more official, or maybe we say it's, like, for real now, one of those things. So naturally, because Ralph had brought all the members together to his dealership for this meeting, Many had suggested that he become the president of the new association. But he realized that he was not the right guy to do the job. You see, he was not famous. His name was not known across the nation. But he did have somebody, and it was his right-hand man, the guy sitting next to him who has been playing for him, the name Jim Thorpe. Now, Jim Thorpe was a gold medal decathlon and pentathlon winner of the 1912 Olympics, and he was one of the most recognizable people in America. So naturally, if I am creating a league, I guess, well, they're calling it an association, but if I'm creating one of these new associations and I want this thing to get big, I'm going to hook my ladder to this horse that can take us to the promised land. But basically, Thorpe was more of like, you know, the face of the organization I mean, he was great at football and sports, but he didn't have the same skills to be able to run the football association. So, pretty much, it was more like Hay was running in the background. So, for the vice president, they named Stanley 
Kofel, and then Art Rani became elected as a secretary treasurer. They gave the chairman role to a guy named Dr. Young, and then a trio of Flanagan, Stork, and Kofel became members of a committee that would basically draft the constitution and bylaws for the association. And there were two things that were brought out in an article that I saw. And part of it was that all teams had to basically announce the list of players on their team by the first day of the new year. You know, similar to nowadays, we have the different kind of levels through the preseason of the players that are going to be on the team, which ultimately leads to the 53-man roster that a team will start with at the beginning of the year. Another agreement was that they said all teams would have official stationery with, quotes, member of American Professional Association. Maybe it was because they wanted all the teams to show how serious this association was going to be. So that anytime they sent out a letter or a memo or anything like that, it was, hey, I am a member of the American Professional Football Association, so you better back off because we are starting this new thing, and if you don't get on board, you're going to be left in the dust because we will ultimately become what my future is going to know as the National Football League. So you can kiss my dust, man. So for the trophy that was going to be given out at the end of the year to the uh, the champion, Mr. Marshall of Brunswick Bolt Colander Company of the Tire Division presented a silver loving cup for the team that was, quote, awarded championship by the association. They were basically going to vote for a champion. They weren't going to base it off a win-loss percentage, which I'm sure would factor into it. They weren't going to have a playoffs. I mean, it reminds me of Jim Moore. Playoffs? We're not talking about playoffs. We're just going to vote for these guys, you know? Um, Yeah, I didn't like it because I thought it was just, you know, I still think it's like basically crazy how you have all these voting for, in college, we have the different kind of rankings for how they're going to become into the national champion game. I mean, now they have like a closer to a playoffs, but uh, I, I really don't know how you would do it other than that. I'm not here to try to, you know, solve the world's problems. I'm just saying. I wish they could figure something different. That's why I stick to NFL, though. That's my primary game. That's my meat and potatoes. That's my bread butter. But uh, speaking of college, the uh, rules that they discussed in the meeting were very sparse because they decided they were going to use the college game rules, which at the time, college was by far the dominant of the two. So they said, why not? Let's just use them. Why? Uh, what's the old saying? You know, don't fix something that ain't broken. Uh, later on, we'll find out that there were a few things that were still broken because they had some major problems that still existed. In fact, they said that according to the minutes, none of their, basically their three major problems were solved. Uh, they didn't really totally talk about the salaries that were rising, the jumping teams, as in the players going from one team this week to the next team that week. And they did, they really didn't put any rules in place either for the use of, you know, collegiate players but it was said that a lot of different decisions had happened before the minutes as in before 8 15 when they officially decided that okay now we are on the proverbial clock meeting has been commenced and the meeting may have left something to the imagination but it was still considered to be the founding of what would ultimately become today's nfl however one minor hiccup could have screwed the whole thing up you see The 18th Amendment made sale and consumption of alcohol illegal, also known as prohibition, and this happened eight months prior to the meeting. 
It was widely discussed that Hay provided buckets of beer to representatives of this meeting, probably to help bring them together. However, this tactic could have backfired. Now think about it. If a police officer would have walked by and saw these dudes in the showroom swigging down some beers, the meeting could have been shut down. Therefore, those very buckets of beer on the ground I discussed at the beginning of the episode that helped found the league very well could have been the death of the NFL. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Football History Dude and were able to gain some knowledge nuggets about the founding of the NFL. In the next episode, I'm going to tell you about the transition of the American Professional Association into the current name of the National Football League and what led up to making that decision. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Football History Dude. To make sure you're the first to get the next episode, please subscribe on your podcast player of choice and head on over to thefootballhistorydude.com for the show notes and more information on the history of the NFL. And remember, dudes, where we're going, we don't need roads.